presents. We did a research project back in those days and, and tried to apply them to some different buildings and found that, that some things didn't work and some things actually made the situation uh, worse. We can't uh, just follow this like a, uh, a checklist and assume it's going to work in every building. Episode 1. William Bonfleth and Jason DeGraw discuss ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force's core recommendations. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Bill Bonfleth. I'm a professor of architectural engineering at Penn State and uh, past president of ASHRAE, and perhaps uh, more to the point of today's discussion, the, the chair of the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force. And I'm here to have a conversation with uh, Jason DeGraw, who's also involved in the task force, and I'll, I'll let him introduce himself. So my name is Jason DeGraw. I am the program manager for weatherization and intergovernmental programs at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and I am the transportation team lead for the ASHRAE ETF. So for the, the last uh, 15 months or so, Jason, we've been involved in this uh, effort of, of developing guidance through the, the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force, which has been kind of all-consuming for, for some of us, um, but not everyone is, is paying quite as much attention to it as, as we are, and, and I think it would be good if we uh, tried to clarify a few issues about what the ETF is and, and what it's been doing, and that may uh, help the listeners uh, have a better idea of how to interpret what comes out of the task force. So uh, very briefly, the Epidemic Task Force was, was formed by... Uh, direction of the, the ASHRAE Executive Committee back in, in March of last year, and uh, we were really put together as kind of a rapid response team to provide guidance on um, what to do with HVAC systems during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I want to emphasize that, that what we're producing is is guidance and, and recommendations, not standards. I think that's uh, one, one thing we want to make very clear is that uh, what we're doing is, is trying to deal with the present situation and uh, the future is something that will require a lot more discussions, although we intend to weigh in on, on that as well. And, and maybe one more thing I'd like to say is, is that uh, from the beginning, what the ETF has done is to make recommendations on the assumption that uh, airborne or uh, aerosol transmission is possible, which initially was kind of in contradiction of what WHO and CDC were saying, but that's what we've been been doing. Um, and I think the, the thing we want to talk about today is the ASHRAE core recommendations, which were published in uh, January of, of this year um, for a couple of reasons. There was, was an inward-facing reason for doing it, which was because we were trying to produce a lot of guidance rapidly. We've got almost 400 pages of guidance now that's been developed, and we had over 130 people working on it. There became at some point an issue of coordination so that while everyone was working so rapidly, they could stay on the same page as far as what the commercial buildings group was recommending and the schools team and, and all of the others. But there was also uh, an outward facing uh, purpose to, to make sure the public uh, knew what ASHRAE was actually recommending at a given point in time. And you've had a lot of uh, involvement in, in that aspect of it. Maybe you want to expand on that point. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Um, so what we were hearing from our partners, um, both within the Department of Energy and some of our partners from outside the Department of Energy, was that there was a need for 
sort of simplified guidance was was mainly what they were asking for. But I, I think that most of the members of the ETF would agree that simplified guidance for something like this is going to be very difficult to provide. So while we couldn't provide simplified guidance, we could provide an entry point that would provide a higher level sort of overview of the guidance that we were providing and enough detail to to engage somebody, but not so much detail that it gets into the weeds and requires the sort of expertise that so many ASHRAE members already have. And looking outward, both professionally in, in my career and also in, as part of my volunteer work with ASHRAE, the core recommendations for me were more an almost ammunition to use when speaking with people outside of ASHRAE, people outside of of for me, research in buildings, but for others that are in, in more practical aspects of buildings, that a, a way to to communicate with those people that need to know some of these things, at least at a high level, but maybe don't need to know all of the details around why we would want to choose MERV 13 filters, for example, which we'll, we'll talk more about later. And, and definitely also to help with what you mentioned earlier, which was the, you know, what is ASHRAE's position? I mean, e even today, <laughs> I, I, it hasn't happened within the last couple of weeks, but I do hear people say, oh, you know, ASHRAE said you should run your systems 24-7. And, and, you know, maybe that was in an ASHRAE journal article, maybe, <laughs> but don't think ASHRAE ever said that. And it, having these core recommendations as an entryway into the very extensive guidance that we have up on the web pages provides a, an easier way to communicate what ASHRAE's current position is and not maybe <laughs> things that were either not our position or were, were very early on sort of positions. Yeah, I, I think you uh, raise a very important point there about the guidance being dynamic. Actually, uh, we may not even remember on the task force where we started out, but actually uh, there was a recommendation to run your systems 24-7 and to another one to increase outdoor air as much as possible. But that came out of the uh, infectious aerosols position document that was sort of expedited uh, to publication in April of last year. And so you know, that immediately created uh, some I think, in retrospect, quite justifiable pushback on, well, what's the impact of these recommendations on energy? And do we really have to do this? And do we really have to do uh, all of it? So it was very important to uh, pin down where we, we actually are. And then, like you, I occasionally see uh, organizations adhering to ASHRAE guidance that hasn't really been in force for six months or more. So that's an important thing. And so um, let's maybe skim through what's in the core recommendations and uh, expand on that a little bit, as we also did in the ASHRAE Journal uh, IEQ column that we, we wrote a couple of months ago. And the, the first uh, aspect of this is follow public health guidance. We don't want to give the impression that if you do things to improve your HVAC systems management of infection risk, that you don't have to do other things. And, and in particular, uh, distancing and use of masks during the height of the pandemic are very important uh, because HVAC systems can't do much about close range uh, transmission by droplets and masks provide uh, some level of reduction of, of both source emissions from people who are infected and also the amount of infectious aerosol that may be inhaled by someone who isn't infected. So uh, that's all good and, and should be done. But uh, uh, after that, then we get into the things that really have to do with HVAC, like uh, ventilation, filtration, and air cleaning, which has been uh, probably the most important uh, section of all. And then there are four subpoints in there. The, the first one is to at least have minimum code 
ventilation in, in your building. It's surprising. Well, maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but a lot of people are surprised to find that a lot of buildings really have no mechanical ventilation. And if there is ventilation, it depends on, on them opening windows. Uh, we're not saying that, that that minimum ventilation is necessarily enough, but we should be at least there as a baseline. With respect to filters, you already mentioned MERV 13s, and those uh, were recommended from the outset because they look like a pretty cost-effective, near-optimal level of filtration. But even that has generated a lot of uh, a lot of pushback because some say that they can't afford to put them in. Some say that they can't put them into their central systems because of the impact on uh, fan power or or other considerations. So uh, one of the things that changed over the course of, of six months or so is we're no longer saying you must have MERV-13 filters, but say uh, combine your filters with uh, other filters or air cleaners to get that level of performance. So perhaps two MERV-11s in series or uh, uh, a MERV-8 plus uh, UV or something like that actually satisfies that requirement. And, and the other thing that I think has been uh, pretty uh, contentious there is whether central filters are, are really effective. And, and uh, that's kind of situational, but uh, I think we are finding that uh, in-room air cleaners are quite effective. The next thing is that we've recommended to be careful about what air cleaners you pick if you're going to supplement ventilation and, and filtration. Uh, there's a wide range of evidence basis and independent research for different kinds of air cleaners, and also a wide range in terms of standards that are available for properly uh, rating air cleaners. And uh, we're really consistent with the CDC and others and with other ASHRAE position documents in saying that. And the final thing that is in that section has to do with selecting control options to achieve exposure reduction targets while minimizing associated uh, energy penalties. And what that really is saying, and maybe kind of an obscure way is that you can combine all of these different things, ventilation, filtration, and air cleaning to reach targets in a way that doesn't add a lot of energy use to the building or that doesn't uh, compromise comfort in the building. So uh, there's, there's a lot packed into those four little statements, and, and obviously they can't uh, capture all of the nuances, but that's the point of entry, as we were saying, to ventilation and filtration. The next section is on air distribution, and that's really your uh, your expertise so so maybe you could say a few words about that one sure so i guess maybe before we even talk too much about air distribution one of the reasons that it's maybe um there's less in there is that we i think that the etf agreed that there maybe was less that could be done sort of in the short term on how air distribution works in uh, in many situations i mean uh, speaking from you know, in, in, in both the office that I work in when, when they let me go back to it and in, in the space mm -hmm. I am in now, changing how the air distribution works is a non-trivial matter. So uh, things, you know, it, it's not a coincidence, I think, that the ventilation, that, that ventilation, filtration and air cleaning are number two rather than, you know, the other way around. Um, one of the, the things about air, air distribution, you do want to try to do things that are going to minimize the amount of trapped infectious aerosols that may be present in a space and you don't want to have air currents that are moving from person to person there's a, um, a famous korean restaurant case where there you can sort of draw a line between the, the infected persons and while you know we can definitely talk about how that you want to you want to you know keep that sort of thing from happening it's very difficult to determine beforehand that 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 may be what's there 
And certainly changing that is is, is going to be potentially quite difficult. Embedded in that uh, statement on air distribution about promoting mixing, which I think is just as important as the rest, that by, by mixing, you reduce the concentration of any pathogen at any particular location. So there's just less risk. We don't know what the infectious dose of the COVID-19 virus is, and we may never know. Um, so doing things like just promoting mixing can reduce the risk of having, you know, sort of a cloud of, of a pathogen come across a person and, and infect them. There's something I wanted to, to add on here, and it kind of goes back to the, uh, the previous uh, recommendation, is that there's some important interactions between ventilation, filtration, air cleaning, and, and air distribution that we are really still working on within the, the task force. One of the important ones is how does air distribution in a room affect the performance of, uh, of standalone air cleaners or how do standalone air cleaners actually function in a, in a given space? And that's an area where we don't really know enough yet and are, are trying to uh, find a way to, to recommend something to the, the, the public that, that will help them to do that effectively. And the other thing is I mentioned combining controls to reach risk reduction targets. Well, that actually suggests that we know how much uncontaminated air needs to be delivered to a space to control risk. And that's been probably the other really thorny problem that we're trying to address. And and that's still in progress. Our our science applications team is working on both these air distribution and uh, ventilation rate issues. And we hope to publish something useful about it soon, but it's it's they're among the hardest things we've uh, tried to deal with. Yeah, I think that since we know, we still know so little, some of these things are very hard to get at. And it's it sort of, I, I think that a lot of, a lot of the guidance that we've, we've given all those 400 pages, a lot of it, you, you need to do more than just one thing. It's not enough to, to think about just one aspect of this problem. You need to think about your systems, your people, everything all at once, which, which makes it harder. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you have to, even though we've got 400 pages of guidance, you still have to use it as a starting point and apply it to your actual situation. I hear all the time from, from people who say, well, you know, this is, is too simplified and that's too simplified. And, and, and I agree with them. There are complexities in, in, in real buildings that, that need to be assessed when deciding how to use these things. And it reminds me of all the guidance that was written for uh, protecting buildings from biological weapons 15 or 20 years ago. FEMA and others put out a lot of really nice checklists about things you should do. And we did a research project back in those days and, and tried to apply them to some different buildings and found that, that some things didn't work and some things actually made the situation uh, worse. Uh, I don't think that's happening with anything we're recommending now, but we can't uh, just follow this like a, uh, a checklist and assume it's going to work in every building. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. I think it's a pretty good segue into the next point, which is the um, HVAC system operation, where there's uh, four sub bullets again. And I think through all, all, all run, what runs through all of these is that there's a building specific aspect here that none of these are going to work for everybody, and they're, it may not be perfect. But again, this is an entry point into what's in the overall ETF guidance on particular buildings. These four items here um, sort of cover all of them. But uh, you, we, you do have to think about what your building is and, and what your building is intended to do before you really think about how you would apply these. The first item here is uh, maintain temperature and humidity design set points. I recall very early on in the pandemic, maybe they were apocryphal stories about people wanting to shut off their HVAC systems. Well, 
if you shut off your HVAC system in the wrong climate area, you could have a real problem for your occupants. You may be reducing their risk of contracting COVID-19, but you may be risking their health due to the thermal stresses. So I think that's part of where that one, that item is coming from. You want to keep your building operating as it should be so that their systems are doing what they should be. You obviously don't want to increase people's risk, but you also, the design set points are there for a reason. Humidity is, is a, has sort of waxed and waned as a, a popular topic on this. What's the humidity range that you need in to be, need to be in to reduce infection risk? I think that at least part of the ETF would agree that while there may be some impact of humidity on infection risk, that it's perhaps less than doing things up in your ventilation and filtration and air cleaning, that you can get more bang for your buck there if you're making sure your systems are operating as they should be. The second item is maintain equivalent clean air supply for design occupancy. Whenever anyone is present, I think there's some risk there for thinking. You really do need to think of everyone as potentially a source for the, the virus, that even if they're, the, they're, they're you know, quote unquote, just the cleaning staff there for an hour or two after everybody's gone, they're just as much as at risk as anyone else, and you really need to be operating the systems in a way to protect them as well. Yeah, I think this this point also gets into the operation of uh, demand-controlled ventilation control. So uh, it's implicit in, in this one that you maintain the design outdoor air uh, for the design occupancy all the time and uh, don't allow your DCV system to turn it down to a really low level because that's not good for infection risk uh, management. Exactly. The third item is is the controversial flush. I think we, we, our original guidance, we were talking about flushes before and after, and certainly flushing a space before or after occupied periods is, is perhaps superfluous if you're able to do everything else perfectly. But in my experience, most buildings are not operating perfectly. There's always going to be challenges in doing things. And there are cases where maybe it would make sense to do it a pre or post occupancy flush just to make sure things are at a lower risk. I think that we picked um, what three air changes, which you know the old um, old first order differential equation gets us down to something like a what a ninety five percent reduction is that what it is. Mm-hmm. So you get if if you just run your systems for another couple of air changes, you get a, a great deal of reduction there. And of course, someone will say that well, you know, if the ventilation effectiveness isn't good, then that that may not. That be enough. And that's another one of those points that, you know, we've been saying that people should look at. And then the other thing here is that uh, this flush between occupancy periods, if you need to, like between classes, is, is really also overriding that that original recommendation to run systems all the time. So uh, this, this really creates a, an opportunity to cut way back on the energy impact of enhancing risk management. Yeah, cer- certainly running your, your system for a couple extra hours or a couple extra hours with certainly going to be a lot cheaper than running it overnight. (laughs) (laughs) So the last item under HVAC system operations is is the limit re-entry of contaminated air. I think this one, I've always, maybe Bill, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I always felt that this one was more of just for this particular virus and this particular situation that that re-entry is less of a risk, but more looking forward or even looking backward to the SARS epidemic back in what, 2002, 3, 4, 5, that time frame, that virus was much longer lived and there was much more possibility that exhausted air could either re-enter or re-enter into another space. 
and, and cause more of a risk. So this one is is maybe less applicable for this particular pandemic, but in terms of overall sort of preparedness, this one is a good one um, just for more more general purposes. Yeah, yeah, and of course, there's a backstory to this one too. This is another thing that that was put in here specifically because the original recommendation had been to shut off energy recovery wheels, um, which obviously is not going to help with energy use of, of buildings. So something that we worked on quite a bit, and there's there's a lot of guidance on it now. And the uh, ashray.org/slash/covid19 pages and in, in building readiness is under what conditions is it safe to use an energy recovery wheel, which is most of the time, most most configurations actually are are safe to use. So, you know, once again, this is updating the guidance from where we started to where we are now. So we, I, we at least uh, we, we commented a couple of times that per, perhaps the buildings don't work exactly as intended all the time. And that's sort of this, the, the last item in the core recommendations of the system commissioning one, verify that HVA systems are functioning as designed. There's evidence that everyone sort of thinks their building is above average, you know, the Lake Wobegon situation, as it were. In in my life as a building researcher, we've encountered all sorts of strange things in buildings from fans installed backwards to, um, you know, the, the dead pigeon between a coil and a filter. And <laughs> I didn't get to encounter that one directly. I think one of, that was one of Bill's students that got to see <laughs> that one close up. Um, the fan installed backwards had been there at least five years and was, was, was taking the air through the system backwards. The air was going out the returns and in through the diffusers, and nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. It was only when we were doing a, a, the, a sort of a, a commissioning operation to, to determine whether or not we should use the building as part of this demonstration project. Did someone notice that, oh, well, this fan is installed backwards. Maybe we should fix that. And, and that one is, is maybe a, an easy one to talk about, maybe kind of funny. But when you start looking at, at school buildings and things like that, it can, the story can get pretty bad, actually. There's a GAO report that the, the way it's expressed is, is a little funny, but it's it's 41% of school districts, at least half of the schools need updates or replacements or repair of their HVAC systems. And I that one, you know, when you start talking about schools, that's, you know, a lot harder to laugh about. If 40% of the schools out there need... You know, they're they're in need of work on their air conditioning systems. That doesn't speak well of us, perhaps, keeping our systems working, working well. And then I think probably everybody has a, you know, their own personal story about how their the system that served their office or room or something was was somehow not perfect. But the guidance that we've put out there, all those 400 pages are much less impactful if the systems aren't working like like we think they are. Yeah, and I, you know, this is uh, something that, that many have been talking about for a long time. You, Gordon Holness, when he was president, his, his theme was maintained to, uh, to sustain but the importance of, of keeping systems operating properly. And you know, something that I've seen in some of the reports that I've read during the, the pandemic is, has been that if they would do commissioning to make sure the systems were operating properly, uh, you normally can expect, you know, perhaps 10, 15 percent improvement in energy use of uh, an out-of-whack system. And, and some of them were reporting that uh, that was basically paying for the cost of any upgrades they might be making. So completely aside from the pandemic, I think uh, it's a good opportunity to reiterate the importance of maintaining systems well. 
So, you know, that's the that's the uh, the, the core recommendations, and it's you know, scratching the surface of a lot of issues that are explored in in more detail in the uh, in the guidance that can be found the the COVID nineteen resources page. I think you know, looking forward, one of the things that that we've discovered is that there are a lot of things that we thought maybe we knew that we don't know nearly as well as we ought to. And there are many projects for the future that will keep us busy years into the future. Uh, Some of the things that we've talked about here, uh, what should ventilation rates be? How should uh, air distribution be designed to be more effective in uh, spaces that we haven't really paid much attention to in the past? Um, How do you deploy air cleaners? standards for uh, some of the emerging technologies that aren't uh, available now. So many, many projects there. And I think it will be interesting to see how much of what we've learned during the pandemic and how much of the pain that we've uh, experienced during it, uh, all of the different things that have happened to people, you know, working from home for uh, over a year and not being able to go to restaurants and, and some people losing their jobs, uh, the losses to families who've had loved ones die. That's uh, All of that is really a, a something we don't want to experience again. But I, I have to say, I, I have a lot of concern that uh, we'll be able to maintain our resolve after all of this is over and really follow through on, on these things. And I, I say that, unfortunately, because I've seen it before. I, I have a presentation where I, I go through uh, example after example about how we've been told how important indoor air quality is and how we've had lesser epidemics and, and other things happen. And we always manage to forget how bad things were and uh, go back to the way things were afterwards. And I, I hope that that won't be the case this time. You know, I, I know I, that, that your employer, Jason, has is talking about this, and, and maybe they'll they'll have uh, uh, some positive impact here in, in uh, changing standards and uh, best practices in the future. Yeah, I, cer- I certainly hope so. I don't think we want to repeat. I know you you did a lot of that research back after the nine eleven anthrax attacks, and that, as that sort of receded into people's memory, and, and you know people coming into the workforce into the research field that don't even remember that those sort of things now. I, I have seen some people redoing some of the work <laughs> that that was done back during that time frame. There's just we we don't have a good record in terms of remembering some of these things. I do have a sort of a broader question for you. How do you think this should change what we do? Should we be, you know, should HVAC designers be thinking about pandemic modes when they design HVAC systems or do we need the manufacturers to be part of that or does it need to be everybody? I, I think it's a comprehensive project is we we need an approach to making buildings safe when they need to be safe that won't make them uh, either too expensive to build or uh, energy hogs. We've got to do all of this in the context of sustainability. And I think we need to bring together the idea of, of healthy buildings or wellness, uh, what really is the appropriate baseline all the time in buildings. You know, we, we know from work that was done 20 years or more ago by Bill Fisk and Oli Seppin and others that there's a huge benefit being lost because of the level of air quality in buildings. If we look at the, the healthcare costs and the productivity benefits that could be achieved. So we merged that with the idea of resilience. That's, that's the other thing is uh, thinking about how we can design systems to be adaptable. And resilience in the past has meant uh, earthquakes and 
floods and that sort of thing. We want to extend that concept to indoor air quality, both with respect to infectious diseases and also with respect to outdoor events like wildfires. Uh, at one point uh, during the last year, you'll remember, we, we were trying to figure out what we should say to people from the West Coast who were asking, do I open my outdoor air intake to protect myself from COVID, knowing that I'm going to be bringing in uh, smoke from the wildfire nearby? Uh, I, I think those are important questions to address. And all, we need to bring energy-focused people and, and environment-focused people into this as well. So it's a big, big challenge, you know, really a grand challenge in the the words that some like to use. And if we can make some progress towards uh, that goal, I think we'll really be uh, a changing life for many people for the better. If I could just add, I guess, on the topic of resilience, that there's always been sort of a focus on resilience of infrastructure in terms of, you know, what we should care about. You know, nobody really cares about the resilience of an office building or the resilience of, of somebody's house. Until it matters, like it mattered this time, because when we talked about, you know, regain of functionality sort of resilience, you know, how how quickly can you return to standard operations? It had always been the conversation had always been sort of about, you know, the, the metal boxes, you know, is the HVAC system able to work? Do we have electricity to power it? Do we have does it work? Can it condition the, the spaces when if you can't have anybody in there because of the, like this pandemic, it doesn't really matter if the systems work properly. It doesn't really matter if the, the building itself is ready to go. If you can't have people in the space, that's just as important as making sure that all of the, the metal boxes work. After Superstorm Standy, where, you know, you had a lot of you know mechanical rooms flooded and, you know, the systems are out, they have to be replaced. There's just not enough systems available, so you have the sort of lead times. And that's the sort of way I think before this, I, I know I thought about this problem is more, you know, in the, the sheet metal boxes that we had and making sure those actually worked when there's an equally important component to this that if you can't have the people there, it doesn't matter if, if the building works as you intended it. So yeah. I, I hope that the resilience conversation will change a little bit after this, where we won't be so focused on command and control type resilience as much as resilience of the building stock as a whole. Yeah, I think, and I think it's good to point out that uh, I hope everyone has read the ASHRAE strategic plan. It's it's not a long document, but the two technical emphases in the 2019 strategic plan that came out less than a year before the pandemic started or indoor environmental quality and resilience. So we were we were almost there. We, we knew it was an important issue, but uh, we didn't get the solution out in time. But uh, you know, that uh, just shows that this is something that uh, we've identified as a priority for the future. So that makes me a little more optimistic than I may have sounded in my earlier comment. Yeah, I think that having been involved in the, res in the Resilience Cognizant Technical Committee for a few years, a lot of those conversations over the past 10 years have been sometimes fairly frustrating when people wanted to only talk about the grid and whether the grid was okay. You know, let's talk about the resilience of the grid. Well, if, if anything, I hope that one outcome is that people will recognize that it is important to talk about the resilience of residential buildings uh, in a serious way, because, you know, I've Having been working from home now for so long, it seems like I don't even know what it's like to be in an office anymore. It's just a completely different thing. And I feel like at least personally now, when when having conversations with people about resilience of, you know, maybe non-traditionally resilient buildings, it's a, a bit easier to convince people now because before they, nobody really wanted to talk about anything but the grid. And while the grid is important, you know, if, if everybody's working from home, you, you got to have good enough conditions at home to be able to work.
Yeah, I think the uh, terminology is is changing, or the understanding of what resilience means, and you know, that's a good sign too. But uh, you know, who knows? We'll we'll see. I've I've been watching this happen for uh, you know more than thirty years of my career, and and we've gotten close to to really uh, making a paradigm shift in the past. Uh, maybe now is the time. Uh, I, I was just uh, looking for quotes to use in another one of my talks, and I, I, can't, I usually try to quote, you know, literary or historical figures. Um, but I'm, I'm actually, I found a great quote from uh, Captain Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean, and he says to the, the guy who was uh, wanting to express his uh, feelings for for a young lady, he says, if, "If you were looking for the opportune moment, that was it." Yeah, you know, I hope that a few years from now we uh, we don't uh, feel like we've missed another opportunity and have to wait for something bad to happen again to, to take another uh, run at it. Ashray Journal podcast team is editor Sarah Foster, managing editor Mary Kate McGowan, and associate editor Chad Jones. Original music by Chad Jones. Copyright Ashray. Views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only and not of ASHRAE's sponsors or advertisers. Please refer to ASHRAE.org slash podcast for the full disclaimer.